BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys, episode 98. The Melancholy Tale of the Manhattan Bridge. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with another solo show for you this week. I promise you that in the next few months, we'll be devoting several shows to places that are actually located outside of the borough of Manhattan. I know we do lean heavily on that borough for obvious reasons, but I couldn't let another day go by without celebrating what may possibly be one of New York's most underappreciated landmarks. I'm talking about the Manhattan Bridge. The bridge just turned 100 years old over a month ago. It opened for business on December 31st, 1909. On the Manhattan side, the bridge starts at the foot of the Bowery, stretching over the East River and sitting right next to the more famous, more beloved Brooklyn Bridge, and comes out at Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. That's 6,855 feet of bridge, seven traffic lanes, and four lanes for subway tracks which serve the N, Q, B, and D trains. This is not... New York's favorite bridge, if I were taking a poll, it is. Is it because it's blue, like pale Smurf blue? Is it because its flat cross-stitched anchorages look rather plain, especially next to the Brooklyn Bridge? Could any bridge get any respect, sitting very close to one of the loveliest man-made creations in the United States? The real reason, I think, is revealed in the following story of the decade-long struggle to get the bridge built. The renowned architect that almost had his vision seen, the other renowned architect who unfortunately did get his vision realized, and the key structural design flaw that some feared would send the bridge crashing down into the water below. A flaw, by the way, that still exists today. It's a story of politics, city beautification, and innovation. And hopefully, I'll bring some appreciation back to the Manhattan Bridge, that massive blue dinosaur of the East River. The most important day in Brooklyn history is May 24th, 1883. It was on that day that the Brooklyn Bridge, the first expanse over the East River, closed the gap between the two cities of New York, the largest city in the United States, and Brooklyn, the third largest city. Not only did the Roebling family of engineers create an architectural gem here with the Brooklyn Bridge, not only did they help define the international reputation of New York, 
But the creation of the bridge energized all of the neighborhoods of Brooklyn. Within a few short years, what had been farmlands and fields were carved into city blocks teeming with townhouses and tenements. The bridge was so successful at dispersing the population between the two boroughs, the city decided to try it again, connecting the overpopulated Lower East Side with the industrial Williamsburg, doing that with the development of the Williamsburg Bridge, which began in 1896 and opened in 1903. Manhattan was being slowly de-isolated by the ambition and the wealth of the Gilded Age. For instance, just as the Williamsburg Bridge was opening for traffic over the East River, below the silt of the Hudson River on the other side, workers were boring tunnels that would eventually connect the Penn Railroad with a glorious new station that was still in its planning stages. Clearly the future was about making Manhattan accessible, both to the outside world, but more importantly within its own new borders. With consolidation in 1898 officially creating the five boroughs of New York City, this became even more of an urgent need. Now, at the turn of the century, the man who was most associated with building New York bridges was Lefford Lefford Buck. That's right, I didn't stutter. Lefford Lefferts Buck, the chief engineer of the Williamsburg Bridge Project. By 1901, his bridge to Williamsburg was taking shape over the East River waters, and the city aesthetes hated it finding it a clunky, monstrous, mechanical eyesore. New York was in the midst of a massive beautification project, a movement that would slather Beaux-Arts extravagance from every corner and building face. The Williamsburg Bridge, with its erector-set silhouette and clean, unornamented lines, did not fit this description. According to one source, it was, quote, a surrender of the city beautiful to the city vulgar, unquote. So, of course, when in 1902, the newly elected reform mayor, Seth Lowe, was elected into office to wage battle with Tammany Hall's Democrats, he took those aesthetic naysayers to mind, demoted Lefford Buck, and replaced him with another familiar name in New York bridge building at this time, Gustav Lindenhall. So, goodbye, Buck. Hello, Gustav. Now, if you're a regular listener of our podcast, that name may ring a bell. If not... I mean, I direct your attention right now to our Penn Station podcast. Lindenthal was an Eastern European bridge builder who emigrated to the United States in 1874 at age 24 and soon made his name as the designer of two bridges in Pittsburgh. Gustav was seen as an innovator who could design sturdy but cost-effective bridges. This, of course, brought him to the attention of the Pennsylvania Railroad in the 1880s. They commissioned Gustav to design a massive bridge in 1885 that would cross the Hudson River at 23rd Street, finally linking Manhattan to the many railways which terminated on the New Jersey shore. This would, of course, be an immense undertaking and would finally get underway a decade later in 1895, with work even beginning on one of the foundations on the Hoboken side. However, of course, due to the massive cost of this project and some very insufferable politics, Penn Railroad decided to go with tunnels instead of bridges, and this massive bridge project of Gustav's was effectively scrapped. In 1902, Linden Hall then went straight to work for Seth Lowe's administration, adopting two projects that Buck had actually already started. One of these projects was to create a new bridge to link Manhattan to Queens. With help from the now-humbled Lefford Buck, Linden Hall designed the dazzling Beaux-Arts span that would eventually become known as the Queensboro Bridge, which would open for traffic on May of 1909. The other project would prove to be a little bit more problematic the construction of a second bridge to relieve the outrageous traffic patterns stemming from the popularity of the Brooklyn Bridge. Gustav and the city government were responding to an extraordinary amount of traffic that was putting great pressure on the bridge. You think traffic jams are bad now? In 1898, the elevated train 
and tracks for an electric trolley line were somehow squeezed onto the Brooklyn Bridge, giving just a single lane to regular wagon and carriage traffic, this being the days before automobiles, obviously. This led to such a horrific traffic jam on June 29th, 1898, that weight from the hundreds of vehicles actually buckled the bridge several inches at two different points on the bridge, causing some to believe that the entire thing would collapse into the river. So that's the kind of traffic they were having back then. And believe it or not, even with the opening of the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903, it would have very little effect. It soon became very clear that an entirely new bridge would need to be built, one that fed from the cram traffic nexus in Brooklyn at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge to an area in Manhattan with well-established cross streets, in this case, at the intersection of Canal Street and the Bowery. With this new bridge, Lindenthal would keep in mind the criticisms that had been lobbed at Buck's Williamsburg Bridge, According to Gustav, quote, In a bridge, it is not possible to separate the architectural from the engineering features. But what would derail Lindenthal's Manhattan Bridge plans would not be these elite aesthetic tastes, but rather fast-changing political winds. Gustav wanted to build a 3,100-foot suspension bridge capable of holding 14 lanes of railroad track. That's far more than it does today, obviously. The towers wouldn't just hold up the bridge, they themselves would have function, with auditoriums built inside one or both of them for public gatherings. This first plan has been described in some of the sources I read as a cross between the Brooklyn and the Williamsburg bridges, and just mixed up with all these bold, ambitious, big ideas. Well, when this idea was boldly and ambitiously shot down, Lindenthal actually went a bit more innovative. With a one-of-a-kind design for a suspension bridge, instead of using huge lengths of wire as on the Brooklyn Bridge, Gustav's Manhattan Bridge, or rather called at the time Suspension Bridge Number 3, Gustav's plan would use long tubes of interlocking steel eye bars, almost like interlocking batons or brace chains. Simply put, according to Gustav, he substituted wires for bars because, quote, they're just as good, they save time, and they're cheaper, unquote. His proposed design would be the very first of its kind, distinguishing the Manhattan Bridge as an architectural marvel in much the same way as the Brooklyn Bridge had been back in 1883. Lindenthal's grandiose ideas were instantly graded with skepticism and complaint. First of all, there were concerns from rival engineers who questioned the sturdiness of the eye-bar design, calling it excessively experimental for the time. In fact, eye-bar designs would be used on many bridges later on, most notably portions of the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. Then, Lindenhall had to contend with the powerful Roebling Wire Rope Company, now operated by the sons of the man who engineered the Brooklyn Bridge, and who now produced thousands of feet of wire rope for suspension bridges around the country. To design a major bridge in New York and not use Roebling Wire? Scandalous. Unfortunately, for Gustav... The Roeblings were allied with Tammany Hall, and Gustav, keep in mind, was an appointee of the reform-minded, anti-Tammany man Seth Lowe. And just to make it all worse, of course, mayoral terms at the time were just two years. And so, on election day, November 1903, Seth Lowe was replaced as mayor by Tammany Hall's selected choice, George McClellan. And McClellan took great pleasure in showing Gustav the door in 1904 and replacing him with the far more pliable George E. Best. Best was not the best. I don't believe he was even any kind of engineer at all. This was like a pure patronage appointment. It seems as if Best's prior function was actually as the commissioner for city charities. For his part, however, Best assigned the redesign of the Manhattan Bridge to a young Latvian engineer by the name of Leon Moisif. 
The new architect actually kept some of Linden Hall's ideas, such as the thin two-dimensional design of the towers, but he transformed the bridge back into a conventional suspension bridge with wire cables, a lower deck with room for both traditional vehicles and a train, and then an upper deck for streetcars. Now, our friend Gustav, he wasn't silent. He was still around, of course. He was an open and vocal critic of Best New Engineer and the more conventional, supposedly cheaper plans. Mayor McClellan would thumb his nose at the jilted designer by rushing the Manhattan Bridge to completion. In fact, all four stretches of suspension cable would be installed in just four months in 1908, almost one-tenth of the time it took to do the same thing on the Brooklyn Bridge. Of course, as this project was firmly lodged in Tammany's pocket, those cheaper estimates for the bridge went right out the window. It eventually cost $31 million in 1909 money versus $15.5 million for the Brooklyn Bridge. The engineer, Leon Moisif, would go on to collaborate with engineers in other cities, helping with the design of the Benjamin Franklin Bridge in Philadelphia and San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. Regrettably, he's better known today for yet another one of his creations, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Washington State, which would be completed in 1940. Now, the reason Moisif is not so fondly remembered today is, well, you remember seeing a video as a kid of this wobbly bridge that tossed cars around and generally looked like it was made of jello before crashing down into the water below? Well, that is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. It collapsed just four months after completion in 1940, and this effectively ended Leon's career and has completely sullied his reputation forever. The Manhattan Bridge is, of course, by no means an equal tragedy to this, but Moisif designed the Manhattan Bridge with one flaw that has vexed city planners for a hundred years. Namely, the subway and the streetcar lines are all placed on the outer edges of the bridge, and not, as in other bridges, in the dead center. What he didn't account for was the fact that the subway cars would get heavier and heavier as time went on, causing this rapid strain on the bridge's outer cables. The bridge actually sways back and forth up to eight feet, even today. Some of that is natural for a suspension bridge. But as a result of this design flaw and where the train tracks are, stress upon the entire bridge has worn it out far more quickly than the other bridges in the city, and New York has literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars to renovate and strengthen sections of this bridge. So the Manhattan Bridge officially opened on December 31st, 1909, and since we're framing things in political terms, it's appropriate to say that this was also the final day of Mayor McClellan's term in office. The bridge at the time did not have to worry about heavy subway trains because no trains, no streetcars were equipped to go over it. By that time, transportation had been taken out of the bridge commissioner's job function, and thus none were prepared to use the new bridge. In fact, the pedestrian walkway wasn't even completed. There is, of course, one very elegant portion that was actually part of Lindenthal's original design, that lovely, baroque, classic approach on the Manhattan side, a beautiful European-style arch that's studded with all these ornamental sculptures all around it. It is very, very city-beautiful. In fact, it's an homage to a Parisian arch and is designed by the firm of Carrere and Hastings, later to become better known as the architects for the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. But did you know that there used to actually be an equally austere entrance on the Brooklyn side as well? In 1913, the sculptor Daniel Chester French, best known for the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., 
Well, French was commissioned to make two great sculpted female figures, representations of Brooklyn and Manhattan in human form, and they were actually placed on either side of the bridge on the Brooklyn side. Now, unfortunately, they took the two ladies away in 1963, but you can still find them today sitting in front of the Brooklyn Art Museum. The Manhattan Bridge would be modified in the 1940s to accommodate its current load of seven traffic lanes and four subway lines, but as I said, this only hastened the bridge's deterioration. There were brief murmurs, even as recent as 1982, to chuck the entire bridge and start over. But, luckily, they decided to keep with the current bridge, and it became the recipient of a comprehensive overhaul. Work was performed on the bridge for almost two decades. In fact, in 2004, that was the first time all four lanes of subway tracks had been open for business in over 18 years. Despite fears and YouTube videos to the contrary, the Manhattan Bridge is still very structurally sound, its pedestrian walkways were opened just a few years ago, and they offer a much different experience than walking along the other bridges, I'd have to say. Kind of feels like you're off-roading it a little bit. The bridge's 100-year anniversary celebration was actually celebrated in October 2009, a couple months before its actual birthday. I guess it was warmer then, with a host of events and a lot of fireworks, which looked pretty awesome, I have to say. And of course, if it wasn't for the Manhattan Bridge, what clever name would they give to the neighborhood of Dumbo, that lovely art-filled neighborhood in the shadow of the bridge on the Brooklyn side? Dumbo, that's down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And don't leave off the overpass, because that would be dumb. So with that awful joke, there ends my story of the Manhattan Bridge. Please visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We'll have pictures, and I'll have a couple YouTube videos that are sort of eye-opening about the Manhattan Bridge, including one rather notorious one that went around last year, highlighting the little extra bounce that the Manhattan Bridge has. Tom will be back in a couple weeks. We'll have another full-length episode. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.